Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 80. My name is Christopher Luff, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we talk with John DiMaggio, Chief Security Strategist for Analyst One. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of the show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamad Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Thanks so much for being with us on the show today, John. It's a real honor to have you here speaking with me. Hey, absolutely. I appreciate you having me. On the off chance that any of our listeners don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm John DiMaggio. I'm the Chief Security Strategist at Analyst One. That's just the fancy title. At heart, I'm a researcher. I spend most of my days doing research uh, these days into ransomware. I do a lot of uh, direct engagements and focus on the human element in addition to the technical element. And uh, at least as of the past year, uh, I've been writing a series called The Ransomware Diaries. And all my research is always published for free, no paywall or anything like that, just in the uh, the thought of getting research out there and uh, helping fight the fight. Yeah, I was reading your Ransomware Diaries in preparation for this interview, and I'll most certainly link it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. And I, wrote, I almost forgot. I wrote a book, too. <laughs> uh, the, Ar- <laughs> the Art of Cyber Warfare, uh, which won the 2022 uh, SANS Cybersecurity Book of the Year. So I'm pretty, pretty proud of that. And that was with No Starch Press. So, yeah, author, researcher, dad. That's my background. Where's the best place for our listeners to get your book if they're interested? Uh, the easiest place to get it is on Amazon. And if for some reason uh, they're out, you can also get it at No Starch Press's website. It's also Target, Walmart, bookstores, places like that. Oh, so. it's everywhere. Sounds like you have great distribution. <laughs> I, I do. That's the benefit of going with a publisher is is that distribution network is huge compared to self-publishing. Uh, so that was one of the reasons I, I wanted to go that route. Awesome. Okay, so I'm always interested in people's Genesis story. I like to know how they got interested in technology and how that interest led to a career in cybersecurity. Can you kind of paint the backstory for us? Yeah, sure. We got to go way back. I was 15 or 16, uh, and my stepfather, it was during the first Iraq war, my stepfather worked uh, directly for Colin Powell and the Joint Chiefs staff at the Pentagon, and I was really interested in computers. Windows had just come out, and I remember thinking, uh, why would anybody use this and have to load an operating system and go through these windows when I can just do it via command line? <laughs> and uh, it kind of started from there, but my point in sharing his background was... Um, you know, they had a, uh, back then you could have a skiff in your house and we had, they had like a secret classified terminal and I figured how to bypass some of the authentication on the modem. And for about 
a minute and a half gained access to that network before uh, they realized what was happening and DOD police and the FBI got involved. I, nobody was arrested or anything like that, but it was, that was after getting in trouble and getting a hundred hours of community service, uh, I, I learned my lesson, but, but that sort of is where I really knew I had a peak interest. And, uh, I, I'd go into the army a few, a few years later and I did it. I was a military police officer and I, I just, I've had crazy luck in my life. I, I started doing, uh, work with the criminal investigation division and i was i'm sure you've seen on tv like cops where they would have somebody wear a wire and go and try and sell drugs and everybody comes and and arrest them i would do stuff like that and skipping a lot of the in-between if you fast forward to what i do today with direct engagements and people think oh that's crazy to do and all of this you know it's really not different than engaging with criminals you know back then and uh, that that sort of elements always interested interested me but in between there, I got out, got into doing networking. Um, I was a Cisco guy, started writing my own blog, doing like more of the human stuff and um, ended up getting uh, sort of recruited into work for one of the intelligence agencies. I was a SIGINT analyst. Um, I did that for many years. Uh, 2014 came around. Uh, I'd really been doing a lot of work in espionage. Sony got hit. I realized the private sector didn't have a lot of experts in espionage, and that was a great time to to join the private sector. So I went to work for Symantec. Uh, I was on their attack investigation team, and I did a lot of their their public facing um, espionage work. Um, I wrote a number of their reports, did research, you know, talked about it, and things like that. So it was uh, it was definitely you know sort of my my passion. If I won the lottery, I would still do this work tomorrow. I mean, I just I, I love what I do. Yeah, that's amazing. It really sounds like you've been on a single trajectory your whole life and are probably exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, like I said, I, I feel really lucky because there's so many people who, you know, are in jobs that they, they may not hate them, but this is literally my hobby. You know, yeah. I was an engineer that was, I liked it, but it was work as where this is my hobby and I am fortunate enough that I get to do this every day now today. Hey, and I love that story when you were a kid. It reminds me, and it must have been around the same time that the movie War Games came out. Yes, with Matthew Broderick. I definitely remember that. Uh, and then don't can't forget Hackers. Oh, yes, yes. It's funny that it's not actually like that, you know, and you're not going through, you know, all the all the, the pipes of the Internet and everything else. But, yeah, that definitely is a those those are the movies that kind of inspire you when you're young, for sure. A hundred percent. Can't forget Tron also. While it wasn't computer necessarily hacking, it definitely was a, one of those inspirational movies as a kid. <laughs> yeah, I actually I have that soundtrack on vinyl. <laughs> Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> um, so a lot of your experience and expertise, as we just kind of covered in a rapid succession, is around threat intelligence at a high level. Can you give us a definition of what that is and why it's important for organizations to understand what's going on in, in the cybercrime world? Yeah, this is actually an argument I've had throughout my career. You either get it or you don't. Um, but, you know, Today, what makes headlines aren't the, you know, 90% of the traffic that like a, a security operation sees can be uh, automated and mitigated, you know, through through products, EDR, things like that. Uh, that other 10% that can't, though, is what puts your company's name on the front page of a newspaper, the front page of a website, because you've been breached or because you've been ransomed. And understanding who that adversary is is important because with with targeted advanced attackers, they come back. Uh, they don't if you stop them, they don't just say, oh, OK, we lost. Sorry, we're going to go <laughs> find somebody else. They often will come back and they have motives, um, especially with espionage, where it's not just financial. 
they have motivations. They want something specific. Uh, their first target may not be their final target. Understanding uh, the background and what they want and what they've done before and where they're going is important. It's kind of like the difference between being a cop or a detective. As a police officer, you just want to stop the, the the bad guy, period. You don't care wh- who he's affiliated with or what he does. You just want to stop it. But as a detective, you want to know, is this person in organized crime? Who are their associates? Uh, who are they affiliated with? What what access do they have to other criminal resources? And that's kind of what I look at threat intelligence as, the sort of the, the detective uh, element where you're providing all that other background and information. And while that may not be a one-for-one to sit there and say, oh, well, this stops you know this many attacks, it doesn't have to. It only has to stop that last 10% that's, that's really going to expose your company and cost you the most money and possibly cost you jobs or customers or other things like that. And that's really where you get your value out of threat intelligence. And I think you make a great point there that uh, they don't give up if they get turned back once. They're, once they set their eyes on a target, they're going to keep, that's where the persistence of the thing comes through. When I worked at uh, I worked at GDIT years ago, I was in their SOC, and I just, I can remember, it was one of the, uh, the, the, the China-based uh, APT groups, and they would just come back and come back and come back. And I mean, we were on it, and we, we, we would identify them and we block them. The the human people were on it is what I'm saying. And we would see them, we'd attribute them, we would find key identifiers um, to know that it's them, and we constantly stop them. And it was like a good 18 months that they were coming at us. And but that's my point. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have that visibility or are in the weeds to see that, but they really do keep coming back. It's not just a threat where, oh, it failed. Let me move on to the next target of opportunity. And, and again, that's why threat intelligence is valuable to understand that. And even more, I've really pivoted off of just threat intelligence to adding the human element to it. And that is really, really pertinent when you're talking about ransomware, because every single victim has to talk to the human behind the keyboard that just attacked them and understanding them and understanding details about them and how they tick and what they've previously done is very important, especially with negotiation. I work with a lot of ransomware negotiation negotiators, and while they're seeing it from a different aspect than I am, you know, I've done I have done a few negotiations, but my point is is I talk to 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 the bad guys that are that are behind those groups all the time. And I think understanding that element provides value uh, when you're having to engage in them. Yeah, that's something we've talked about on the show, actually, is, you know, it's always important to remember that the people perpetrating these things, you know, they have families and vacations and financial pressure. And, you know, as much as they're sort of the boogeyman coming through the the computer, they're ultimately people. And if you can try and think of them like that, it helps you to sort of understand them better and build better defense. It, It does. And it's funny you say that. There's there's a threat actor that I that I I talked to. I talked to a lot of threat actors, but there's some that I talked to frequently. And there was one who just kind of disappeared for about a week, and I was wondering, you know, was he arrested? Did something happen to him? And um, so I reached out and I said, "Hey, you've been awfully quiet. Just uh, just want to see what's going on." And he's like, "I took a vacation, man. I'm like, I keep, I'm a human too. Like I need to rest. Also, <laughs> I've got family, and you know that doesn't. I, I'm not trying to make it like you know." It, I am friendly towards them because I have motives to 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 that I that I'm using to gain information. But that doesn't mean that I still don't come across people that if I didn't know that they were criminals that that you know weren't somebody that you, you drink beer with. But the point is, is that getting that information and having those relationships can go a long way. And I'm not expecting that everybody's going to do that by any means. But what I am saying is there is definitely a value in that intelligence being collected in that manner, especially for bigger companies. 
government agencies, law enforcement, but bigger companies in the private sector, um, I, I see this as a, definitely a tactic where they can use to get ahead of the game and to understand threats before they happen. Um, I've even learned about attacks before they've taken place by making these direct engagements and building these relationships. And well, today I often do it um, as my own, in, in addition to using a uh, fake persona, you know, sock puppet accounts, I didn't used to. I used to only use fake personas for for safety and anonymity. And you know, not now it might be crazy, but I put my face and name on things. But my point is, is that regardless of how you conduct the, those operations, they provide a value that you can use in defense and getting ahead of the game. There seems to be a never-ending stream of articles and research papers on new ransomware gangs, info stealers, extortion, etc. Do we even have an idea how big the cybercrime industry is? Well, it's a hard question to answer because there's so many of them. However, there's sort of like a, a core nexus of your top tier uh, groups. And while you do have lots of uh, lower level organizations pop up, and even in the mid-tier within ransomware um, pop up, you know, those those sort of top collectives, like, you know, I, I look at Walmart, I mean, Walmart, I look at Lockbit is like the Walmart of the ransomware industry. It's, it's like a big box store. It's corporate run, their structure, they treat it as a business. And they have a massive amount of employees. And then you have, you know, other groups that are smaller, like let's, let's say no escape, for example, where it's a much smaller group, they still have success, and they still present a valid threat to organizations. But they're not run like that. They're run more as an actual criminal gang. So, you know, understanding that does, again, it makes a difference in how they operate, but it also makes a difference in their targeting and, you know, the type of, of victim of victims that they're going to go after and the ransom amounts, all that plays a factor. So I think understanding that's important, but the number constantly grows. Like there's, I see new uh, ads for, for ransomware gangs where they're recruiting, you know, uh, on a regular basis. And it's like, okay, who is this? And you never know who's going to be the next big, you know, criminal organization. So you kind of have to try and keep up with it if, if you're, if you're trying to identify, you know, new groups and then their infrastructure, you know, what sort of ransomware do they use? How can we get this? Is it, is it, does it use a weak encryption that we can, we can break and get a decryption key or, you know, all those things, you know, I look at when I see a new group. So it takes a lot of time. Yeah, I bet. And uh, probably exponential in the number of people that you're seeing all the time. It, it is. And but the thing is, though, you don't want to wait till you're a victim to start looking at it. You know, you want to uh, you want to be ahead of the ahead of the game. And, and I understand, you know, that you can't you can't spend all day when you have, you know, a, a whole infrastructure to protect. You can't spend all day just doing this. But you can certainly, you know, especially if you're a bigger corporation, you can certainly have at least one or two people that are, you know, focused on this so that you do have some subject matter experts who are staying ahead and then are feeding that information to your IR teams, to your defenders, you know, giving profiles, identifying the tactics. You know, again, you don't want it to be the day that you're in an attack that you have to figure that out. You want to have that roadmap so that when you see it, you hand it off and your guys go and you know where to look if you're already breached to stop it from getting worse. And if you're not breached, you know how to defend and attribute against that, that actor. Yeah, tabletop exercise kind of thing. Exactly. That's another important thing that I think auto organizations don't do. I was working with a friend who who runs that for for Navy Federal Credit Union, and you know I was really happy to see that he was contacting me and asking me all these questions because he wanted to make that tabletop as accurate as possible and wanted to sort of uh, ping me for real world experiences that they could integrate into it. 
But I think that is that is great. And I don't have anything to do with Navy Federal. I'm not trying to, to give them a plug, but it's they, it was awesome to see that they were thinking of that ahead of time and doing that. And I, I hope that more organizations are doing that. I wouldn't know that they do or they don't, but I hope that they are because I think having that battle plan and practicing it is going to make a huge difference in when that day comes. And it will come, you know? Yeah. Do you think cybercrime would exist as it does today without cryptocurrency? Uh, I do not. I absolutely do not. You know, uh, cryptocurrency itself is not bad, but it is definitely used for more more bad things than good things, unfortunately. But it does it it, it does feed that that whole ecosystem. You know, you you could also sit here and say though, do you think if victims didn't pay ransom, that ransomware would be here today? And it wouldn't either. So there's lots of things that we can place labels on. It doesn't it doesn't even matter whether you think it's good, you think it's bad. It's there. It is. It is what it is. It's it's not going away tomorrow, and it's something that we have to learn how to deal with. But uh, that is, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's definitely one of the core elements. I think that that feeds uh, ransomware it would make it almost impossible to do uh, without without having the existence of cryptocurrency. Uh, this was one I was going to ask later, but you kind of just touched on it there. So I'm curious. Do you think that? The decision whether or not to pay ransomware should be an ideological one or a business decision driven by the impact on the business. You know, I when I first started, I used to be pretty adamant that I didn't think anyone should pay ransom. Uh, literally, it would go away if companies didn't pay. Uh, what I came to realize pretty quickly was that, you know, these these companies, I can't hold it against them. These companies are faced with sometimes their entire business could be jeopardized. They could have to, to lose, you know, hundreds of employees could be fired. Um, they could lose millions and millions of dollars. Their clients' data or their customers' data could be exposed, exp- you know, and that affects thousands of people. It, there's there's lots of reasons why companies pay now. So I don't, I no longer hold that thought. Um, I understand why companies pay. And at the end of the day, it's, we can't blame them for the ransomware problem. It's the ransomware criminals that we need to blame. I, but I, but I do think that the real problem or a real problem that also feeds that ecosystem is there are companies that I've seen, and I'm not going to name names, but I've seen that'll do things where they will pay for stolen data in order to get like a competitive advantage on someone. So say company A gets compromised and they know that company B is a competitor, they'll go buy that data from those criminals in order to leverage it to gain business uh, of that victim. And that happens more often than you than you, you believe. And I, I think that is extremely unethical. And so th- there's things like that that I have a problem with. Companies paying a ransom, I, like I said, I no longer, I don't, I don't love it, but I understand it. Yeah. And I just think of the recent MGM attack uh, by Scattered Spider, the LV associated group, you know, Caesars paid and they were back up and running in like two or three days. And then MGM didn't pay in a hundred million dollars later. I think, which is uh, estimated from outside. So we don't know if that's the actual number, but it seems like Caesar's Palace probably made the right decision when faced with that. Yeah, well, not just not just that, but we also, you know, we also barely, I don't even, I think we didn't even hear about Caesar's until after the whole MGM thing was exposed. So I could be wrong on that, but I don't remember hearing about it until afterwards. And when that started, and, you know, that just kind of goes to show that by paying, it did keep them out of you know, out of the news, and we may not have even known about it. And, uh, you know, so I do understand reputation and everything else is affected. So sometimes companies just have to pay. Yeah. So while reading through some of your research, I was really taken by how you're able to put a human face on things. 
you know, as we talked about previously, ultimately, these cyber criminal gangs are run by people with the same pressures, feelings and problems as the rest of us. If, if you had to paint a picture of what your average cyber criminal look like, what would that be? Or is it too generalized to, to narrow? No, I mean, since I focus on sort of the, the bigger groups, the, the, the top ones that are, you know, in the news all the time, you know, the, the ones that are really successful are, the, are generally the ones that run it like a business where they don't, you know, treat it as a personal thing. They don't get involved in, you know, politics. They don't get involved in caring about where the people who support them work for. You know, th- those are those are sort of the the elements that I see in the, the 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 criminal organizations that are more successful. You know, one of the things that I always sort of fascinated me um, when I first started looking at Lockbit is they would do things like reach out to their affiliates and take polls on you know new features that they would want or what they should work on next, and it really reminded me of like you know, a, a, a service support type of element and, um, you know, getting feedback from your peer criminals on what you want to see next in their criminal program. I mean, it, at the time, in a way that was unheard, unheard of to me. And I think it's, it's that, that business mentality where you're running it almost like it's a legitimate business as opposed to a criminal organization that makes them efficient and have success. And that sucks, but that is honestly what I see in the more successful organizations. Yeah, one of the more shocking things for me as I started researching different threat actors over the years was that they actually do their own marketing. You'll see like product demos, uh, YouTube promotional videos and on Twitter and stuff like how do they get away with it is it just a lack of resources from law enforcement side or is it the sort of semi-anonymous geographically distributed nature of the business I mean it's it's there's a combination of elements of the problem I mean you know there's the problem where and I'm included in this you know media organizations we report you know the the larger threats we report all this stuff we talk about these groups and, you know, a lot of them want to be famous. And by making, you know, news reports and by putting out research, we are we are literally, uh, you know, shining a light on that. And it's gotten to be a thing where other groups see these groups like, you know, um, Alvin V, uh, Lockbit, you know, back in the day, Revil, they see all the headlines and they want to be famous as well. So um, today, fast forward, you have, you know, groups that literally hire PR organizations uh, to help them with things and uh, not organizations, but they'll hire a PR person like uh, Ransom VC, for example, they had hired uh, someone to just do PR for them um, at one point. I mean, that's just not something that we saw with criminal organizations back in the day. It's it's about fame. It's about getting their name out there. And the more they do that, the better hackers that these criminal elements can attract to work for them, which just, in, you know, basically helps them to be more successful. Um, are the threat actors ever state sanctioned or maybe even supported by nation states or is it independent criminal organizations? So it, I, I'm going to tell you my opinion of that because there's not... concrete evidence there is evidence it's just not concrete evidence um i I do believe that that government organizations especially like the fsb in russia uh, they they absolutely work hard to get their hooks into ransomware threat actors and you know i wrote a paper um a couple of years ago called nation state ransomware and that was back before it was cool and and everything else. And it took a lot of heat. But I think today, if people were to read that, they would 110% agree 
because we've had things happen like where the Conti leaks, where, you know, they talk about uh, addresses of where they need to go meet people. And those addresses end up being, you know, intelligence headquarters for the FSB and things like that. You know, there's a lot of evidence. Uh, I do believe that there's programs out there to recruit uh, ransomware hackers and and to, to use them. There's literally been examples like uh, Maxim uh, Yakubitz, uh, where he ran a ransomware gang and then, according to the United States government, started working with the FSB. There's a couple examples like that, for example. And I've had ransomware actors tell me uh, before uh, that they are forced to share some profits with with the government. So in short, yes. Are all of them like that? No, of course not. But they're definitely examples of where they are. And then you have ransomware that's used to support government uh, operations. And where do you think they get people to do that? They want to have the, the experts. So if they can identify who those people are, they'll go after them. One of the things that I've always said about Lockbit, who I've spent a lot of time, you know, over the years here talking to, especially the past year, you know, they're not afraid of of the FBI getting them. They're afraid of the FSB getting them and their life changing to where they can have, all, you know, their own independence and make all this money to where they're going to have to, you know, facilitate supporting the government and, you know, working for the government. So, you know, that's what really scares them. I watched a, I can't remember the name of the show, but they were, you were talking about your personal experience with Lockbit. At one point they had used your profile picture on their social media profiles. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? And what was that experience like having such a nefarious group sort of focused in on who you were? Yeah, so they, they still do use that uh, that image, at least on one of the, the Russian forums. It's, uh, it's always weird when I see that. But anyway, yeah, I had just come out with uh, the Ransomware Diaries Volume 1. It was, uh, yeah, it was last January. And it was uh, within the next week, I had logged into... Uh, one of the Russian hacking forums where a lot of ransomware talk took place. And uh, I, I, I just, I saw my face and, you know, it's one of those, you know, oh crap moments. Like I thought did I somehow post my picture to my profile. And then I saw that it was Lockbit's profile. And I was literally, it's just, it's milliseconds, but it's like the confusion and that like anxiety of not understanding what just happened, but knowing it's really bad. And then it sunk in like, oh, they are using my my picture. They took my picture off of, I think it was like LinkedIn, and they made that their, you know, their avatar on the forum. And it's still like that. And and as time progressed, you know, and I was continued my research with them, you know, I would see them literally on these forums talking with other criminals, talking with the leadership and other ransomware gangs, even getting in arg- heated arguments. And this other person is sitting there seeing my face, <laughs> you know. Well, they're having these arguments. So, yeah, it's it, it's different. It takes a little bit of time to get used to. Um, you know, one of the affiliates took my uh, my Twitter picture and my profile and, and mimicked it on his uh, also. And what I came to realize is it's not done and it's not a threatening thing, which is what I initially thought. They do it actually as kind of like a sign of, of respect, like, hey, like, you know, that you, you got us on that or that was that's crazy that you you, you did this and had some success with it. And um I think that comes down to the to the Russian culture, which a lot of us in the U.S., when we just think about ransomware, uh, we don't understand it. I've gotten to understand it a lot better. Um, but yeah, it wasn't actually a threat. It was kind of a, even though I had just exposed all this information about them, put all this stuff out there, it was kind of like, you know, okay, well done. You got us type of thing, as opposed to we're, you know, upset and we're threatening you type of thing. And, and I'm glad that that's the case, but it took a little bit for me to figure that out. A little bit of a tip of the hat, well played, sir, kind of sentiment. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Interesting. 
So you've been working in cybersecurity for almost 20 years and threat intelligence for at least half that. What's it been like watching the sophistication of the adversary develop and how are we doing as defenders? So <laughs> not not great. You know, I, I it, we it's kind of I look at it in, in, in multiple parts here. You have ransomware, you have espionage, and then you have everything in between, which is everything from insider threats to you know, bots and software-based malware, things like that. But as a whole, you know, the, the larger, more dangerous threats we're not doing very well defending against. I get it's very difficult to defend against um, nation-state groups, and that is because they have, you know, these crazy resources and time on their hands. But, you know, it's still manageable uh, when, when you have a good threat intelligence team that's focused on them and understands the persistence of advanced attacks that you need to follow them and know and be ahead of the game. But when it comes to ransomware, I would equate it to like the war on drugs in the 1980s. We're, we're talking a lot of talk, but it and, and we really do want to do better. But at the end of the day, we're getting our butts kicked. And um, I, I don't have an answer for that. But I think, uh, you know, some of the problems are the way that we defend is very reactive. And even in our proactive approach, a lot of times that proactive approach is very specific to like targeting infrastructure. And I think we really have to look more at that human element on, on how to disrupt them. You know, I, I saw a lot of behaviors when Revol and Lockbit back in 2021, they got into this, this big war with each other on the forums. And there was a lot of propaganda and untruthful things that were posed in order to steer affiliates away from one to the other. And to be frank, it worked. So I, I think that what I, in seeing that, I, I think that there's a lot of things that aren't easy and are out of the box ideas that we could do that would help affect the entire ransomware sort of threat landscape if we did it right. And even if even if I'm wrong, it certainly couldn't hurt because, again, we're not doing great in that fight right now. So we need to do something different. And I just think that getting that mentality and getting the right people together to organize those type of efforts would go a long way. Sort of like a counteroffensive disinformation campaign to sort of disrupt those networks and their ability to coordinate. Yes, it's the other. I mean, that stuff is done to 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 us all the time, and you know, I feel like we need to start doing things like that back. And people scoff at it, and they're like, "That's just crazy," but it's not. You know, it works. It's effective for them, and they are arguably winning this battle right now. And like, we need to try doing things that are different, and we need to start thinking differently. And uh, I'm not saying stop doing what we're doing, but I'm saying we need to add more of these components to it. And just because it's not zeros and ones doesn't mean it's not just as valuable from a defensive posture. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that a lot of companies are, are, are afraid to even go down that road. And they say, well, you know, that should be law enforcement that does that. And I understand that. But here's the thing. Law enforcement can't do that for everybody. And you're the one that's going to be, again, on the front page of, an, of a newspaper or on a website. And that's going to be having all your customers' data and it affecting your stock and everything else. So we can say that should be a law enforcement thing, but at the end of the day, you need to work, you need to protect you because nobody else is going to do that. And uh, I just think that mentality needs to change. But it, it all starts with getting the right people in those positions to help you. It's not a shoot from the hip type of thing, but there are experts out there in that industry, in the industry that do this 
you know, it's, it's just actually implementing this and changing that mentality and starting to make it a thing where we actually go and make that part of our, our engagements in, in fighting and defending threat actors. Yeah. And I'd, I'd imagine we'd have to probably get some laws changed as well. I think about Sean Carpenter and Titan Rain. You know, here's a good guy doing good things. And he almost went to prison because he was accessing somebody else's computer, even though it was an enemy. Yes, yes and no. You know, a lot of the things I'm talking about don't actually cross that line of active hacking. Almost everything that I do doesn't not well, not almost. I, I never cross that line and I do direct engagements. I do intelligence gathering. I mean, you can look in my 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 like the ransomware diaries volume one is a great example. There is stuff in there um, that I wrote that after I put out that report, I literally had intelligence agencies from around the world contacting me and asking me questions, which told me that there's information in there that wasn't public knowledge. I mean, not sorry, that wasn't that they didn't know about, not even public, but that they didn't know about. And the truth is, I literally did all that work from my living room on a, on my laptop. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 things that can be done. It, it, it's stuff that is valuable. And there is information that I learned that helps to defend. You know, I'll just give you a real quick example. One of the things pointed out to me that that was unknown is how uh, it was specific to Lockbit, but it was how these groups were responding so quickly when they would get a, 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 a victim in a negotiation room. And one of the things I learned through a direct engagement was that they set up an alert that would send a text message to their phone when the victim was there. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's interesting, but how does it help defend? Well, you know, getting information like that from an offensive perspective, those are all the types of things that we can try to leverage to exploit. And that's one very small example. There's a lot of things like that. But all, I guess what I'm trying to say is the more information, I obviously have an intelligence background coming from having worked in the government, but I have applied that to the public sector now since 2014 and I've had massive success. And I, I'm always trying to, I feel like I'm preaching, but to spread the word, like we have to start doing that type of stuff more. And there is success. There's a, a ton more examples of what I just said that I put out there, but other organizations can do that too. And it doesn't require hacking. Now, there are things that we can do that, would be, so you're right, the, law, the laws would need to change. And even with the laws not being changed, you know, working with law enforcement and getting permission to do things, you know, is something that you can try and do. And it's, I've done, I, I've, I often reached, reach out to, to the government and law enforcement before I do things to make sure that one, I'm good at what I'm doing. I'm not breaking any laws. And two, that I'm not going to affect any of their operations for, for so for deconfliction purposes. But there's lots of ways around this if we just work together. That's really interesting. Yeah, it makes me think about getting onto some forum on the dark web and starting a fight between a couple people and letting them sort of take each other down, right? I'm telling you, (laughs) there's value there. Like after the Revil arrests, that was the first time I ever saw affiliate threat actors talking about quitting doing ransomware, that it wasn't worth the risk. And I get we can't control who's arrested and who's not in another country. But I watched all of the fear and the conversations and and things of that nature. So I just just thinking about it, I'm like, what if we were to take like a threat actor and have well-established sock puppet accounts that, that were credible in that community that all started to point and say that threat actor X has been compromised by the FBI. I believe their infrastructure might be compromised and everything's being monitored. That also happened with breached forums. People just started exiting in masses. If we did that with ransomware, it would absolutely have an effect and people would be, they would think twice before they went to jump in with working with those organizations. 
Oh, wow. I, I could see this being a really interesting theoretical white paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might, it might be one of these days. So, <laughs> Well, John, I, I could keep talking with you, but I, I am coming up to time here. So I'm going to uh, give you the last question I have, which is one I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? I do. I'm going to talk. This is going to be specific to ransomware, and this isn't new necessarily, but I think it's really going to start being something we see. It's been said, but I believe that we're really going to start seeing a pivot where there's less ransomware encryption type attacks versus just focusing on stealing data. And we're already starting to see that. But last week, I saw a conversation between some senior members of um, multiple ransomware organizations that were discussing whether or not it made sense to keep working on uh, doing ransomware where you're encrypting or whether to just focus on stealing data. And one was saying that the encryption version of ransomware was was dead. The other one was saying, no, there's value. The one that said it was dead was saying that because companies have caught on, they're doing, they figured out that they need to do remote backups. It's not enticing them to pay. And if they do, they're going to pay a lot less for it. And the other was saying, yes, you're right. However, we've stolen their data. We want them to pay they're going to be temporarily crippled, even if it's it's just a short amount of time. Let's say it's they still have to spend, you know, I'll call it a short amount of time, weeks to, to rebuild all that or to restore that data, at least a week at a minimum. And that's pretty fast. You know, leveraging, ha- having their data leaked while that's happening, even if they can restore, is going to be more beneficial than not. But the fact that they're having that conversation tells me that things are changing. So I do think we're going to see changes within the ransomware landscape, I do think we're going to see more groups that are just leveraging data, uh, stealing data and holding that for ransom. And I do think that we're going to see, continue to see these new creative methods used to intercept and breach companies. Just one thing I'll add to that, that, you know, you talk about changing tactics. I'm sure you saw, I think it was Alfie that filed the SEC filing. Uh, that a company that was breached didn't follow the four-day protocol of reporting their breach. It can't make this stuff up, man. It's uh, it's it's why I I love doing what I do, and it's why I enjoy the human element of it. Yeah, all of that sucks, but it's just it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy that that this stuff happens, and um, it's it's what gets me up every morning and wants me to you know go chase bad guys and and, and try and make a difference. It's 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 very rewarding, and it's always interesting. Very cool. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, John. I wish we had more time. Uh, I might have to get you back on the show if you're up for it. I think there's so much more that we could have talked about here today. So I appreciate your time and uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.